Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And the Baker Street Journal, the leading publication of Sherlockian scholarship since 1946. Subscriptions available at bakerstreetjournal.com. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, Episode 76. Out of the Abyss. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack-in-office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Oh, I couldn't think of a greater time for which you to join us here on I Hear Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. And I'm Bert Wolder. Oh, and aren't we glad to be back together? Yes. yes it's, it's been a, too long. It's been too long, and it's a lot better than being apart. That's true. That is true. I, you know, I can't imagine uh, having the temerity to mount a show like this on my own. <laughs> There's no way I could do this as a, uh, a, as a single individual. Oh, no, me neither. You need somebody to talk to. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I mean there's no way my my jokes would fall flat on their own. It's better to have them fall flat in your presence. Uh, it really helps me. You know, I find uh, having someone to talk with during the day is really important. And so typically when I go to the market or even to the office, I like to hold my cell phone up to my ear. Of course, I'm not connected to anybody, <laughs> but I do keep a constant conversation going about – What's going on? And uh, it's helped me a lot in my new book, which is how to, which is uh, going to be out shortly. The title of which is "How to Stop Being Paranoid by Killing All Your Enemies." Because I've gotten right. in these conversations, you know, a lot of material for that. Well, actually, no, I have. Yeah, well, yes, I have. Well, you know, there, there's an app for that now. <laughs> it's called <laughs> I Crazy. <laughs> Is there an app called iCrazy? There should <laughs> no, be. There, there should be. That's very I, funny. I, I actually I found <laughs> I, I found a um, oh, gosh I, I hope I can remember oh, I this. Like that. I found a a Twitter feed last week. Um, I think it's called Fun Products. Or hang on, let me just let me see if I can find this here. So I I found a uh, I found a Twitter account just this week called Fake Product Hunt. Fake product hunt. Uh, so, for example, um, CrowdTaker. CrowdTaker quickly aggregates reactions from your social influencers and informs you of your opinion on the news as it breaks. Or, <laughs> let's see. I swear I did. 
tweets about how hard you worked out today, no matter what. <laughs> Uber your enemies glitter. Send glitter to the people that deserve it for two to ten times as much on nights and weekends. <laughs> yeah. Check it out. Fake product time. Oh. You know, there was a story in the Times, in the New York Times, within the last couple of weeks, uh, about some new app that's uh, basically it's a fake girlfriend or a fake boyfriend. <laughs> and you sign up for this thing. And... Um, Apparently, you get messaging. You can get text messages or emails or other things from um, a non-existent girlfriend or boyfriend. And the essay that the writer did in the New York Times was basically about her experience with it. So in this particular case, it was a woman who signed up. And um, the funny thing is that after a couple of weeks or a couple of days or whatever her period of engagement with this thing was, she really felt the need to break up <laughs> – <laughs> with the fake boyfriend and so and so the end of the essay and the end of the essay you know and it was really her experience you know she found these messages you know a little uh wearing and so the end of the experience is she had to write one of these uh you know it's not you it's me kind of messages yeah, nice <laughs> well at least in that kind of situation you'd be excused by doing it electronically versus having to show up in person for that's the right that's right so well that's great uh well, um, you know, it's been a month since you heard from us last, or maybe less amount of time if you happen to be going through archives, but we wanted to thank you for joining us as a listener. Mm -hmm. And there are actually a few special thanks that we wanted to put out uh, right here and now uh, to three uh, individuals in particular, uh, Hein and Company, mm. James O'Leary, mm. who you may be hearing from in a little bit, and Mary Miller. These are all individuals, or in Heinen Company's case, an organization, who took the time to donate to us uh, on the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website. Uh, they were generous enough to go to PayPal and put in an amount of their choosing and are supporting the show in their own way. So uh, Heinen Company and James and Mary, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Everything that... You, uh, you, you, you give us a donation to us, goes into the production of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Uh, you know, we have to pay for bandwidth. We have to pay for equipment. Uh, we have to pay for uh, various hosting and email charges and everything. There's a lot of, uh, you know, background stuff that you don't see. Mm. But your help uh, helps us to uh, keep the show running in a, an appropriate format. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. And the writers. You know, we have to pay the writers. Yes. yes. Thank you very much. Very much so. So, um, and we will, we will be hearing from James in a little bit on uh, mental exaltation. So stay tuned for that, uh, that new quiz feature that we have in every show. But in the meantime, why don't we, why don't we get to the news? I think... <laughs> Somebody tells us that, you know, the press has a certain role here in I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. The press is a very valuable institution if one knows how to use it. Read all about it. <laughs> yes, read all about it. And, and and we know how to use the press here at I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Um, of course, if you don't already subscribe at IHearofSherlock.com, check it out. You can get yourself an email subscription for... Uh, updates as they happen. You'll get uh, one update 
uh, per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's as frequently as you'll get it. But uh, there's also a weekly option and an option to just subscribe to our audio updates. But some of the news that we've covered on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere lately, um, we've had Chris Redman join us as a contributor in uh, recent weeks. And he put out a um, a wonderful piece about fan fiction versus pastiche. Where is the line drawn? And, uh, wow, the comments flew fast and furious. And I don't think there is necessarily an agreement on where one ends and the other begins. Uh, it's kind of one of those arguments for the ages. Uh, and sparks flew during that. So, so check that out from uh, March 9th. Yeah, that was interesting. And the... Uh, you know, as part of that, I was um, su- amazed to see in the New York Times Magazine on February 22nd, they devoted a whole page to fan fiction yes. around uh, the BBC Sherlock and around the uh, the emotional, affectionate relationship around, well, I guess, you know, the gay relationship uh, between Holmes and Watson that some fans have imagined and illustrated and written about in great detail. And you can find that, I think, if you go to the New York Times, I think that the page for that in the magazine was My Dear, Dear Watson. And you can probably yeah. uh, click through and, and find that. But they uh, surveyed and, and excerpted a lot of fan fiction around that. Yeah, and we'll we'll have links to that in the show notes. And, of course, you can find it on our Flipboard mm. at co slash Flip Sherlock, mm. all lowercase. And you had been in San Francisco as part of your travels and visited Mr. Holmes' Bakehouse only a few days before you went back, I think, and took all their recipes. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that was right after the, uh, the theft. Oh. Uh, I, I showed up on a Tuesday, and there had been a theft at the bakery at uh, on Friday night, I guess. Oh, and you had an alibi, I guess. I did. I was not in San Francisco at the time, fortunately. Uh, but um, I visited with Glenn Maranker while I was out there, and Glenn said, "Hey, there's this this bake shop called Mister Holmes Bakehouse. It's in the uh, the Tenderloin district of San Francisco, and uh, we paid a visit there. And it's just a walk in shop. There's really uh, barely any seating at all. There's a couple of stools and a, a, a kind of a window ledge, and that's it. It's really a grab-and-go place. They're known for cruffins. Mm-hmm. You've, heard of, you've heard of cronuts, right? I've heard of cronuts. I've had well, cronuts, yes. Yeah. Well, you can imagine what a cruffin is then, right? Yes. It's, it's some sort of uh, pastry, multiple-rise, flaky combination with a muffin as opposed to a donut. Yes, yes. Did you have one? Uh, I did, and they were delightful. And so, how would you describe up, it? It's a light, flaky muffin, hmm. and in their case, they had some filling in it as well, hmm. um, and it was delicious. But people line up around the corner because cruffins don't go on sale until nine a.m. Hmm. And we arrived there at eight thirty, and the line was already down the block. Hmm. And uh, we just went in and grabbed some other, uh, some other pastries and uh, i asked somebody behind the counter uh about the origin of the name you know what was this was this in homage to anyone in particular and uh, they said yes yes it was in fact uh there was a cat named mr holmes and uh, that's where the name of the bakehouse came from. but the cat had the name holmes after sherlock holmes well maybe i think so i think 
I think I got that from reading the story about the theft of the recipes. But look, I think the important point here that you're glossing over is that Glenn did not have an alibi. Wow, that's true. Mm. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Wow. Well, and um, recently we also celebrated a 30-year anniversary. Uh, Jeremy Brett came out as uh, Sherlock Holmes 30 years ago uh, for U.S. audiences. And uh, it was 1985 hmm. was that when the show debuted. I know the hmm. filming first started in uh, 83, 84 area, but uh, hmm. the PBS audiences first saw him in – uh, in in March of nineteen uh, uh, nineteen eighty five, hmm. it's amazing to think of it so long ago now. Yeah, hmm. my parents wouldn't let me stay up late enough to uh, <laughs> to watch it. It's, uh, Indeed, I was frustrated. Indeed. And we also had another uh, interesting piece from uh, Chris Redmond about the origins of the phrase "quick Watson the needle." Uh, he thought he uncovered the mm. uh, the true inspiration for that, and as luck would have it, Sherlockians came out of the woodwork mm. and uh, informed him of earlier and earlier yet uh, iterations of Quick Watts and the Needle. And I think we got down to the final mm. uh, original inspiration there, and so he did a follow-up piece on that as well. It's mm. been an interesting evolution to see uh, his pieces, uh, you know, kind of being taken and then discussed and then him writing mm. uh, follow-up pieces. Right. And the interesting connection there to the, um, you know, the apocryphal cases from the battered tin dispatch box, including one called The Adventure of the Tea Cozy Embroidery, <laughs> which I think was the first time that Holmes said Quick Watts and the Needle. <laughs> and then The Yellow Thread. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I got one thing to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dreary day in Baker Street, uh, I guess so. and Holmes was close to the bay window, and as the sun's slanting rays cast down, he was looking again for the yellow thread to finish the small domestic scene he was embroidering for Mrs. Hudson's tea cozy, when suddenly a knock came at the door. Telegram for you, my dear. <laughs> uh, um. Well, uh, other other topics you can check out, and I hear of Sherlock everywhere, uh, include uh, the origins of uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Star Trek crossovers. Margaret McMahon actually contributed a great piece because she was the editor of uh, an early publication uh, that actually took those uh, into account. Uh, it was the, uh, the Federation Holmes. Um, and of course, well, that was by, uh, uh, Dana Martin Batori. Uh, but then there was a, an earlier, uh, version on, uh, Star Trek fanzine. I guess it was, uh, the adventures of Sherlock Bones. Mm -hmm. uh, it was done in the intergalactic, etc. So, uh, Margaret was the editor of that one, uh, from years ago. So we have her to thank for the write up about the, early origins there. And um, there's actually, a, there's a new audio series out there you might like to check out. If you're, if you're interested in audio versions of Sherlock Holmes, uh, as much as we covered with um, Burt Cools on episodes 68 and 69, uh, you might check this out. Uh, Lost Without My Boswell is a, uh, an undertaking 
wherein uh, this group is looking to do audio recordings of the entire canon, and they are casting for it. Hmm. So they are actually looking for character voices for each of the stories. Hmm. So head on over to lostwithoutmyboswell.com and check that out. Of course, we've got a write-up from March 23rd. Hmm. And then there's uh, some information called from other sites on the steam-driven Internet, Moran's. Which oh, has yeah. been a bastion in the Chelsea district of New York for Sherlockian events during the BSI weekend may be closing. That's very sad. Yeah, we hope it's not, but uh, I guess they're undergoing the, the building is undergoing some management changes, and uh, Morantz has been closed at least temporarily during renovations. There's no telling whether it will or will not open again, but uh, that's been the site of the William Gillette luncheon and a number of ash. Uh, events mm. over the course of the years, and it's just it's a spectacular place. Uh, just one of those gems in the heart of Chelsea. Um, we hope it doesn't go away permanently. Mm. Silver Blaze will be run at Pimlico, a Silver Blaze race. Yeah, Greg Ruby has uh, resurrected this. So if you go to the fourth uh he's got information about uh, Silver Blaze, the uh, the Southern Division. Uh, check that out. I know uh, in Peter Blau's latest newsletter, uh, the Silver Blaze Northern Edition at uh, Saratoga will be run uh, later this year as well. Hmm. And our pal Betsy Rosenblatt had a paper on intellectual property and literary figures published in the Colorado Law Review. Yeah, it's nice to see that getting some official recognition. Hmm. With our, I know that was all on the uh, the free Sherlock topic, right? Mm-hmm. And. Um, well, there's this site, uh, artintheblood.net. Uh, I, I don't know if that was the original uh, URL. It may have been artintheblood.com, but it was a wonderful discussion forum uh, for Sherlockians. It, it, I think it was hacked at one point and was taken offline, and uh, the originator has um, reinvigorated it under artintheblood.net. So mm. if you're interested in connecting with other like-minded Sherlockians, you might want to check out Art in the Blood. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. go right ahead. No, go, well, I mean, Fox has ordered a show about Conan Doyle and Houdini, which I know virtually nothing about. Yeah, I had just seen the headline of that myself. So uh, I, I don't know exactly how deep they're going to go into the relationship, but... Um, it's always fascinating to see kind of two uh, major figures of, of uh, history and of the occult, in this case, uh, combining forces. We know that Holmes and Houdini, excuse me, Doyle and Houdini were uh, friends in real life. And uh, Houdini was very interested in dispelling the myth or the, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, facetiousness of the uh, of mediums and and those who wish to take advantage of others uh, for seances and and the like. And of course, Doyle on the other side believed very fervently in these. was was a spiritualist, mm-hmm. uh, particularly after his uh, oldest son uh, perished during World War One, um, and their friendship uh, was broken up because of their differences on spiritualism. Mm. So we'll see. Let's see what yeah, that turns into. Yeah. But uh, if you want to get into discussions with other Sherlockians, uh, feel free to head over to uh, the Google Plus group. Uh, 
You can find it at bit.ly slash SH Community, capital S, capital H Community. Uh, there are over 2,400 members at this point talking about everything from fandom to Jeremy Brett to art to the original stories to pastiches. I mean, you name it. It's going on over there at uh, the Sherlock Holmes discussion group on Google+. Plus. Of course, there's a link to that in the show. Very good. Yes. Well, I think it's time we get to uh, the main course here uh, with our friends from uh, the Sherlock Holmes, or I, I should say the BSI Manuscript Series. We've got three guests on uh, this time, which is amazing. Usually we try to cap it at two, but uh, we have the three editors from the latest edition, Out of the Abyss, which is the facsimile of the original manuscript of The Empty House. Uh, the first we have on uh, Bob Katz, who is known as Dr. Ainstree in the BSI. Uh, Bob received his BA from Haverford College as an MD from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He resides in Morristown, New Jersey, and recently retired after 35 years of practicing pathology. He's been a Sherlockian for longer than he can remember, receiving his irregular shilling in 1983 and the two-shilling award in 1995. He's had articles that have appeared in numerous Sherlockian publications and has been a speaker at many science societies and BSI dinners. He co-edited the BSI manuscript series books The Wrong Passage and Irregular Stain, both with Andy Solberg. He's been active in many science societies on the East Coast, served as Gasogene of the Six Napoleons, and is the current headmastiff of the Sons of the Copper Beaches, and he founded the Epilogues of Sherlock Holmes in New Jersey in 1990. We also have Steve Rothman, known as the Valley of Fear in the BSI, who has edited the Baker Street Journal since the year 2000, and he holds the Two Shilling Award. He writes and talks about the works of Christopher Morley, and he edited The Standard Doyle Company, Christopher Morley on Sherlock Holmes in 1990. And he also edited the Remar A Remarkable Mixture, award-winning articles from the Baker Street Journal in 2008. Together with Nick Utekin, the former editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, uh, he edited To Keep Green, uh, To Keep the Memory Green, rather, Reflections on the Life of Richard Lancelin Green, 1953 to 2004. You may, you may remember Steve and Nick being on our show on Episode 8 of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. In 2008, he delivered the Cameron Hollier Memorial Lecture to the Friends of the Arthur Conan Doyle Collection at the Toronto Public Library. A dedicated book dealer, a book collector since the age of 12, he's also the president, apparently for life, of the Philobiblon Club of Philadelphia, as was Dr. Rosenbach before him. Hmm. And finally... Andrew Solberg, who is Professor Corum in the BSI, received a BA in philosophy from Brandeis and an MHS in health planning and administration from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. He lives in Maryland and operates a strategic planning consulting practice for healthcare providers. He's been a healthcare regulator and an adjunct faculty at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. He has published more than 25 Sherlockian articles including a Morley Montgomery Memorial Award-winning article in 2003 with Donald Pollack and co-edited The Wrong Passage and a Regular Stain, both with Bob Katz, a former gasogene of Watson's Tin Box and a member of many Sherlockian groups. He's also chairman of the board of the BSI Trust. Well, gentlemen, welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Good Great to, to be good here. Good to be here, as always. Yeah, you are all multiple-time eye-hosers, <laughs> if, that, if that's a thing. Uh, Bob and Andy, this is your third time on the show, and Steve, this is your second. So I think this is a, a record between the three of you. You have eight appearances. Well, what what number episode is this? This is 76. Well, I remember the first time Andy and I appeared was 50. That's right. We, we right. talked about uh, the wrong passage volume. So, uh, And that wasn't all that long ago, so it shows that... Uh, I hear of Sherlock everywhere is uh, just a very much ongoing and successful undertaking. So that's great. Rumor has it. Yeah. <laughs> and Steve goes all the way back to episode eight. That's an, an old timer. Yeah. Well, as you know, we are here to talk about the latest uh, production from the BSI manuscript series. And this would be Out of the Abyss. This is the facsimile manuscript and uh, annotations and commentary on the manuscript of The Empty House. Now, to me, this is really fascinating because this is a project that was uh, in the works for quite some time. As a matter of fact, it was actually in development even before, uh, what was it, uh, Irregular Stain uh, came to be, wasn't it? Steve, why don't you tell that story? Well, yeah, you're, you've got you've got the backstory, Steve. The, the the story is that Mike Whelan kept asking me to do this volume, partly because I live around the corner from the, where the Rosenbach, who owns the manuscript, is, and there, and I'm involved with all the local libraries in Philadelphia. And I kept saying to Mike, I'd love to do this, but. I have the journal to put out, and that's five issues a year, and that takes a lot of time, and I'm not sure when I can do this. And it's hard. And he kept not hearing that and just asking me to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, you know, sounded out the Rosenbach about doing things and had a verbal sort of okay, with, and that was good. But finally, Mike was getting very anxious about this because he ideally wanted to do all these things as they had been written so that every manuscript series volume would come out in order that way, which is a nice idea, but not, of course, always doable. And so when it came time for uh, the empty house to be done, I said, no, I can't do it right now. So Bob and Andy went on to the next book, which was... Um, it's a regular stain. A regular the second stain, stain volume. And and they did that, and that was, and they were had enormous fun doing that. And then they went on to yet another one and had enormous <laughs> fun doing that. Um, and so they said, "Hey, we'll do this with you." And I said, "Well, that's great. If I don't have to do the work of soliciting authors and um, things like that, and, and I, I can help you in as many ways as I can, um, I can." I will certainly do that. And so they said, yes, they would be happy to do as much work, all the wonderful work that they'd done before. And so I went then, and, well, I'll tell you the story about arranging for the manuscript later, but we'll get, because I'm getting ahead of ourselves. So there's And, the yeah, Steve said that, uh, you know, we, we could all work together, and, and the nice thing is that... Uh, 
the three of us have been friends for at least 35 years, so we thought, uh, sure, let's go for it. And uh, it, it was a it was a great collaboration, and and uh, we're delighted that uh, we got to work together. Yeah, and I I know we're all the uh, beneficiaries of that as well. Um, you know, clearly, uh, Bob, you and Andy have uh, done an extraordinary job working together as co-editors on the last now three volumes of the Manuscript series. And um, I know you've told us in interviews before that you would gladly go ahead and do it again. It's been such an enjoyable experience. So uh, we're delighted. And um, even more so that you were able to kind of help Steve along here because as you both indicated, uh, this is a very difficult undertaking for any single person to do. And when it's done as a team, um, and, and, and I think when, when you get right down to it, when our little interest of uh, in, in Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes scholarship is done well, it's done well as a team sport, uh, whether it's uh, outside criticism or letters to the editor or uh, other angles to an idea, this is really a most wonderful team sport. And I think the three of you uh, exemplify that in your, in your editing capabilities. Oh, and Steve brought so much experience in the editorial world from his his you know many many wonderful issues of the Baker Street Journal that uh, to us it was it was just a no brainer. I mean, it was you know having Steve on on board was not only a lot of fun, but uh, I think Andy and I would we we learned a lot about the well, editing process from Steve because he just uh, you know is, is so skilled at it and, and shared a lot of uh, stuff with us and. Uh, it, it it was great all around. So what are what are some of the things you learned? Yeah. Well, um, not, talk talk a little bit about that process and yeah, and who and who did fix. and who did what to who 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 had what role in all of this? Oh, we all we all did it together. So that I mean, we took advantage of the fear, the fact that we had three pair of eyes reviewing uh, each chapter, and uh, we would all find edits that needed to be made that the others didn't find. Uh, in addition, Steve has a lot of formatting tricks that we learned. Um, and it was, uh, it, you know, it was really a very pleasant uh, experience. So they would go through first, generally speaking, Andy and, and Bob, and then they would send things on to me and I would look them over and I would do my corrections, and then Andy would be the one who would go through and, and accept everything because we were doing everything in the wonderful world of track changes before sending it on to um, John Berquist, who was the one who was ultimately formatting things for the printer. And um, so it all worked well because since I worked with Word every day for the journal, I could do some things much easier than uh, Bob or Andy because they didn't know some of these things. And we were able to turn in a very, very clean manuscript to John, so he was able to get things rolling faster than usual, which was good because then we were able to have proofs that we could, the three of us went through um, to clean up yet more things (laughs) because that's how it always is. And um, hopefully we've turned out a very nice book. So, Steve, does this... Does this make you think uh, at all about your normal editing process for the Baker Street Journal and 
you know, would would the the thought of a co-editor or some additional set of eyes be useful to you in that kind of situation? Uh, my, my wife Janice is a, by profession oh. an editor and um, spends much of her time as copy editing and proofreading. So she goes over every issue, and that's why it looks so good. Why doesn't she have a credit or a byline? <laughs> because she doesn't want one. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Janice's skill is exceeded only by her modesty. But she, yes. she's just she's just very but she, skilled. But Jan, Janice goes over every every issue, and um, so that's what helps enormously. And she right. can't. It, it's that really makes a real difference because I've learned so much from her about all of this that I had no idea how to do. And that's wonderful. Hmm. So what that, was? That, well, no, go ahead. Well, what was the timeline for all of this? So Mike was uh, stimulating the production of this, and you're near the manuscript uh, at the Rosenbach. So what was the – when did it start? When did actual work start? Well, maybe this is the time for Steve to tell the, the story of how approval was obtained because um, – then we can, after that, then we can tell you about how the actual work process occurred in the actual timeline once the manuscript was scanned, which is really when things get production-wise underway. Mm. So yeah, maybe you can tell us, tell us about the Rosenbach and obtaining permission and all that jazz. Well, and it's, actually, if we can go back one step further than that, um, where, what is the Rosenbach? For people that aren't oh, not familiar, yeah, question. You know, who, who was Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach and... And how did the Rosenbach Library come into being? And, and of course, how did uh, Dr. Rosenbach himself acquire the manuscript? And is he still accepting patients, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Rosenbach, Dr. Abraham Simon Wolf Rosenbach, uh, was a Ph.D. in English literature from the University of Pennsylvania. And um, he was, a by trade, a rare books salesman and uh, one of the greatest ones who ever lived and certainly the most successful of his time. He was he had places both in Philadelphia and in New York City. And um, when he was in partnership with his brother Philip. Um, as, and after they both died, they set up, they left their um, property and their monies and things to a foundation, the Rosenbach Foundation, and that turned their former house on Delancey Street in Philadelphia into a library museum. And after ver- various changes of names, it is now part of the Free Library of Philadelphia and known as, with a horrible name, of the Rosenbach of the Free Library of Philadelphia. I don't believe that name will stay for very long. And that came into being in 2014. They became formally part of uh, the Free Library. Dr. Rosenbeck bought this manuscript, as uh, Randall Stock explains nicely in the book, in his chapter, Unlocking the Empty House. He gives the whole history of the manuscript, and you can read all about it there, but he bought it at auction because I think... um, he was sort of charmed by the fact that Sherlock Holmes is uh, portrayed as an old bookseller. And rather than putting it into his stock, it just became part of his collection. And it's been, so it's been with the Rosenbecks for all that time. 
and and are are they typically open to working with outside uh, entities yeah. on uh, very, manuscripts? Very, very much so. Um, outside scholars are they have readers there all the time. One of their other treasures is the manuscript of James versus Ulysses, which has been, as you can imagine, worked to death. They also have. Um, as close as we have to any sort of working manuscript of Dracula, which Les Klinger used uh, extensively for his... Well, they have the notes on Dracula, which Les Klinger used extensively in his annotated Dracula. Um, they have more treasures than you can imagine. Right now they have a wonderful show up about Oscar Wilde in Philadelphia, where they show, um, among other things correspondence from James Stoddard to Oscar Wilde for, from right after that dinner which he had with uh, Conan Doyle and and Wilde and Stoddard at the Langham Hotel in London. So these are good things. Um, so anyway, the story of the manuscript. So I had had, as I said before, verbal okay from Derek Dreyer, who's the director of the Rosenbach, to um, publish this, and I turned him earlier volumes of manuscript series so he knew what we were doing and he thought this was a good idea but as uh, it became clear that they were going to become part of the free library I was worried there was going to be another layer of um, permissions that would be needed to get So, and Derek agreed with me so we signed off um, at the end of 2013 he gave me a letter and I had, I had Mike sign it or I signed it for the Baker Street Regulars and we had all the permissions in place and then he said, well, we'll arrange for scanning. And I said, well, that will be lovely. Um, and then he called me up and said, we can't scan this manuscript. I said, why not? He said, well, because the binding is too tight and we only have a flatbed scanner. I said, hmm. Which is reminiscent of the experience Andy yeah. and I had at Haverford College, which we talked about on, you know, when we were interviewed about uh, a year ago about a regular stain. And we got it done, but as, as you may remember, Andy and I said that, doing a flatbed scanner with a tightly bound volume that's worth that much money and is of that much historic significance was an utterly frightening experience <laughs> and one which we'd rather avoid in the future. Right. So go ahead. So they, they, I'm sorry. I was told, we can have it done for $10,000. I said, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, and then I thought, where do, who do I know who might have fancy equipment for scanning. And I said, ah, at the University of Pennsylvania, which has a um, the Schoenberg Center for Digital Digitalization of Manuscripts, where they're doing lots of ancient and medieval manuscripts, but they're also doing some modern things. So I called up the people at Penn, and I said, would you do me a favor? And um, this is where 40 years of working with libraries pays off. And they said, of course, we'll be delighted to do this for you. So I called them back at Rosenbeck, and I said, I got permission from Penn. They'll do it for nothing. Um, when can you get it to them? So they were back and forth about this. Because meanwhile, they'd also agreed to um, send this manuscript off to London for the current exhibition at the Museum of London on Sherlock Holmes, where it is right now. Um, but finally, they got it over to Penn, and in a day or two, it was digitized. And I had it to take up in January 2014 to uh, New York, and I gave it to John Berquist. It was on several uh, DVDs, and he put it onto um, flash drives for 
Bob and Andy and me so that we would have copies that, so that we could work with it when we needed to have questions about what was in the manuscript itself as opposed to on the printed page. And that's how it works. So now um, Bob and Andy and I, and I'm sure John, have copies of the whole manuscript. And uh, the Rosenbeck has a um, archival digitized version of it, and Penn has an archival digitized version of it. And people can still see the real thing when they want to, but if they need to play with it in a serious way, they can just do it on screen. And one of the reasons John why Burke. it's one of the reasons why it's important to have the scan um, at near the beginning of the process is because uh, we need to give it to John Berquist and uh, Randall Stock. Uh, and John. Phil I'm sorry, uh, Phil Burgum and Randall Stock. You're right. Um, um, and uh, Phil goes through the manuscript and and does a transcript of it, with including all of the changes, and compares the handwritten version to the published version, the various published versions, and that takes a long time to do. Um, and Randall, of course, looks for interesting things uh, in the manuscript that he has in his usual chapter. So uh, um, we needed to get that done before we could really proceed. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, for those of our listeners who might not be au courant with the whole idea of looking at an author's manuscript, could you talk a little bit about why that's important, why looking at the manuscript is important and the kinds of things that you discover when you do so? Okay. Um, well, I think it's important historically in terms of the Sherlockian stories because uh, you know much has been written about uh, the fact that originally Sherlock Holmes was Sharonford Holmes. Uh, and, um, it, you know, it's it, – you see the evolution – of the characters through the stories, and um, uh, so, well, from the from the point of view from the uh, handwritten manuscript and the changes that were made to the manuscript uh, through the publication of the of the volumes, um, uh, and and you do learn things primarily about names, but also about um, uh, particular. Uh, instances where Conan Doyle may have changed his mind. Uh, for example, Colonel Sebastian Moran was originally Colonel Aloysius Moran, and that doesn't sound nearly as <laughs> uh, as dark and uh, uh, foreboding. Um, also, it, sa it sounds uh, like some kindly uncle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also on um, on one of the pages when. When uh, I thought I had it marked, um, when Holmes talks about uh, how he got down from the Reich Reichenbach, there's a there's a uh, on the manuscript there's and, and he put his shoes on backwards. Uh, there's a um, there's a symbol on the page uh, which just it's a line. Uh, at that section, uh, a, a vertical line at that section. And one wonders whether Conan Doyle 
put that line there to remind him to rethink the whole concept <laughs> because uh, it really is a kind of a goofy idea. And, um, and so you get to look into the mind of Conan Doyle while he was writing this. Mm. Yeah, um, I, yeah it, I think that's I think that's a really important point. I mean, this is, um, you know, the closest that anybody is going to get to really looking over the shoulder of the author as they do the work. And, uh, you know, for those folks who haven't seen the book or or understand the form of the manuscript, Conan Doyle uh, produced this in three exercise books. It's all handwritten and with a pen. And as you look at the reproduction of the manuscript, you observe things. You can see when his pen was running out of ink. You can see the very few times that he corrected some of his thoughts and tightened up some of the language. You can see spaces where he sort of left blank and figured, you know, he got to the point where Holmes was explaining what he was doing during the great hiatus. And uh, he couldn't he couldn't retrieve the word or didn't know the word for the for the uh, the head of the Tibetan organization. So he sort of left a little blank that was then filled in later on with uh, the head lama. And you can see, you know, all of this uh, kind of as it as it uh, took place. And then in terms of the process, he sent it off for uh, typing and there were there were several typed copies made. And then, as as you've done in in the manuscript, you can see all the changes. You know, so as yep. McClure's took it into print, they made some changes, some punctuation changed, some names changed, some spelling changed, and it's sort of all brought together. You can look at the whole production process for this very seminal work um, of uh, of, uh, of Holmes's Holmes's uh, record. Do do we have any idea how long it took? Conan Doyle to fill his three exercise books and, and write uh, The Adventure of the Empty House? We probably do, but I'm not sure we have anything here because um, we, we often know there's things from his account books and things like that. Sort of they started is, it, from, is it typically you know, a matter of days, weeks, yeah. months? Uh, days. Days. days if, if that. And he usually, I, my theory is that he had a few notes um, that he would have jotted down a page or two of notes figuring out the story before he started. And that's why these things look basically so clean, mm. because he had his puzzle puzzled, and then he just had to go from there and write it out, which he seemed to do, I think, in pretty much a white heat. And that's why there are the spaces, because... He wasn't going to stop writing when he didn't know what he was going to do at that moment, just go on to the next bit. Mm. See, my own view is why the only manuscript we have are for the Valley of Fear. Got it. Bob? The only well, my, my own view as to why the manuscript series is, is important, other than being fun, it's important, is not only just for Sherlockians, but for readers, because when you think about it, this is, a, this is now a, not only a work of art, but a lost art. There are no more manuscripts. I mean, everything now is done electronically. Um, books are written on the computer screen. They're edited on the computer screen. They're published off of a computer screen. So if you were to say to us, where's the manuscript of Out of the Abyss? You know, the book we produced, it's, you know, there really is none in that sense. Yeah. Uh, they won't, so there, for all intents and purposes, won't be any more manuscripts. Whether there'll even be books in the future is, is another story, but certainly this type of handwritten manuscript just uh, doesn't exist. And I, I had the opportunity years ago to see 
one of the Dashiell Hammett manuscripts. You can call it a manuscript, but it was a, it was written on a manual typewriter. So that is a certain charm, but even that's gone. Um, and all books now are done electronically. And this is this to me is for a reader the equivalent of looking at a great painting because it's it's just uh, visually wonderful to see. And as I said. The current generation of readers and certainly the next generation of readers will never see this kind of manuscript for a modern book. And I think it's important that we preserve this sort of thing and make it available to readers because it is it is so fleeting. Yeah. Um, Bert, in answer to your question, Randall, um, who usually in his thorough analysis of uh, uh, the writing of the manuscript, says that he... Conan Doyle uh, wrote to his brother that um, they offered uh, him 6,000 pounds for mm. the rights to all six home stories. On, he wrote that on March 4th, 1903. And the um, his diary indicates that he completed the story on March 31st. So that's a pretty short amount of time. Mm. So in... In reviewing, and, and obviously not only the uh, the contributions of Out of the Abyss by uh, the other authors, but in reviewing the manuscript itself, um, were there any surprises? Not really. I mean, I don't. I don't think. Uh, um, I, I can't say that I found any particular surprises. Uh, it was fun to see how. Um, Conan Doyle made changes that increased the drama of uh, uh, the narrative. For example, on page 30 of the book, uh, he added that when uh, Watson first saw Holmes in his uh, examining room, uh, he, he added that when he, looked, when he turned back from the bookcase uh, and looked at, saw Holmes in front of him, he added, I rose to my feet, um, and then he fainted for the first and last time <laughs> of his life. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it, it, you know, that adds to the dramatic effect of, uh, um, of the narrative, but uh, I, I can't say that there were mm. major surprises. Well, I had, a, I, I had a couple of surprises here. I mean, in, going, in reading the book and going through the notes, um, you know, over the years, of course, I've read this passage – um, several times about the amount of money uh, that was involved in uh, the game of whist, let's say, 420 pounds. But I had no idea this would be $61,000 in uh, mm. contemporary, <laughs> contemporary yeah. money. That's, uh, that's um, big. And, uh, you know, one of the surprises is um, how great – the scholarship and notes are that uh, have been produced here that accompany the manuscript. So, for example, you know, you find out that poor old Adair was shot with an expanding bullet. And there's this wonderful little passage here um, accompanying the manuscript on page six as an example, which explains all of this. Although sometimes known as dum-dum bullets after the British military arsenal and small arms ammunition factory near the town of dum-dum, which I never heard of, India, where they were developed. It should be noted that the superintendent of the arsenal, Captain Neville Bertie Clay, <laughs> didn't develop the soft point 
303 caliber bullet until 1896, two years after Ronald Adair's murder. However, this is not the origin of expanding bullets, as is often claimed. Uh, in 1889 and 1891, Major General Michael Tweedy, ah, General Tweedy, received patents for a soft metal core bullet that expanded upon impact. And then it goes on into the Hague Convention of 1899, and uh, uh, it's just wonderful, absolutely you know, wonderful. You know, this is what makes the, the editing these books so much fun. I mean, it, I am constantly amazed that intelligent, accomplished, busy people lend their, their intelligence and their skill and their time and effort into doing the kind of analysis this chapter is offered to the rest of us who are uh, – uh, interested in Sherlock Holmes and and or who just find this kind of yeah. material interesting. Yeah, and we should uh, we should tell people too that in addition to the manuscript and the notes, which you have here, are a dozen accompanying essays exactly. by Phil Burgum, Randall Stock, Catherine Cook, Lindsay has contributed uh, an entry from Doctor Watson's diaries, which is wonderful. An empty house. Nick Nick and Ray Betzner, Russell Merritt, Brent Morris. Someone named Steve Rothman has written something here about Dr. Rosenbach, which doesn't seem to mention anything about his medical practice. But skipping over that. Since uh, he's not a physician, I hope it doesn't. Well, <laughs> these kinds of details. This is hair splitting. Peter Calamai has written about Watson's great well, I game. I think it's fair to say he's no longer a physician. Ah, uh, he's no longer anything. <laughs> Maria Flyshank. So how did you decide – um, so, you know, so not only is this an opportunity to get the manuscript and to sort of look over Conan Doyle's shoulder and to see these kinds of annotations, but you also have these kinds of contributions. So how did you decide on this Baker's dozen of essays and, and who to, who to ask and who not to ask? And Well, it's, it, 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 we approach these books of figuring out what, what the uh, interesting things that we would like to have answered is, you know, when you said that all of this is a team effort, we want to get people who have expertise on um, uh, various aspects of the story to address things that we as readers have found interesting, compelling, and uh, un, uh, unanalyzed, not yet fully analyzed. We want to make every chapter – uh, ultimately be the uh, the definitive chapter on that particular issue so that it answers questions for us. So we made a list of questions that we would like to see addressed, and then we came to agreement on that list, and then we started talking about who would write those chapters. And, um, uh, it, you know, among the three of us, we know – a tremendous number of Sherlockians, and um, uh, you know Brent Morris is uh, the uh, uh, he did his his doctoral thesis on the mathematics of card shuffling, uh, <laughs> and he's a magician, and, and he's a magician. So we we knew that he would be the best person to write a chapter on how. Um, uh, Sebastian Moran cheated at cards. Um, 
And and you know, Mike Whalen told us that it, that was his favorite chapter. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can learn a lot there. You know, I made about uh, seven hundred and ten dollars since I picked up those tips. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think to, to, to step back just one, one step from Andy's comments is one of the, you know, Andy said we, we kind of make a list of questions that we'd like to see answered. And, you know, the advantage, particularly with having three co-editors in this book, is you're looking at maybe 120, 130 years of collective reading of the Sherlockian literature since, you know, we don't seem to have anything better to do. Uh, and... Uh, you know, when 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 you've done that, you you really have a, I think, a sense of what are issues that haven't really been addressed in the, in the literature before, or what are issues that have been sort of taken for granted, and maybe we can take a different slant on uh, when when you're writing a book of this nature. So, you know, that that I think guided the three of us in putting together uh, a list of potential chapters, and and then when when you look for contributors. As Andy said, some people just kind of pop out, like, you know, Brent Morris and Cards, or we have a chapter on uh, Moriar, uh, Moran, rather, in, um, in you know, stage and screen, that in television, that sort of thing. And, and Russ Merritt, of course, is so expert on, on, on that issue, those issues. Uh, even though it was funny when we approached Russ, he said, gee, there's not much going on with, with Moran. There are only, like, three appearances. And we said, well, take a look. And, of course, by the time he was done, he found about 30. Uh, but uh, you know, so, some people just are, are obvious fits. Some people uh, are just really good writers and bright people, and and uh, uh, we just thought it would be great to to have them in the book. And and then one thing that that Andy and and, and I and Steve agreed uh, when when he joined us for this third volume that we've we've done together is we also want to take the opportunity to to um, invite some people who are talented but have not. Perhaps because they're younger or whatever, because they they have not yet been as as much of a participant in the Sherlockian literature um, as some of his older hands, and uh, we, we we try to look for people like uh, Maria Fleischak, who's a terrific scholar in in Germany, and uh, you know this this was an opportunity for her to show show the Sherlockian world just how good a, a researcher and writer she was, and and. You know, we, we, we've done the same thing in some of the other books and in the book that we're, we're upcoming, uh, maybe we'll mention at the end, we've done the same thing. So it's, it's, it's a nice chance to give some newer scholars some, uh, some of the recognition that, that they really merit and, and, and some of the opportunity to, to kind of show the Sherlockian world what, what they can contribute. And that, that's very satisfying. And, and I, I, I should also say that in regard to this book, uh, Bob had the idea of us uh, addressing what other people were doing during the great hiatus. So uh, we we really didn't know what what Mycroft had been doing. We didn't know to a great degree about what Dr. Watson had done during the hiatus. Um, and so we wanted to have chapters on on uh, those kind of issues. And uh, in regard to Dr. Watson, because there's really so little except for the fact that um, uh, we know that uh, Mary Morstan died, um, it really had – it lent itself to someone like Lindsay Fay, who is a, you know, a great uh, writer and, and uh, um, has published – 
a number of uh, great books, and uh, uh, she really wrote a very effective chapter on that. Um, right. Really, it's a short story, and it's lovely. And someone else who just jumped out at us was um, uh, we wanted to have a, a chapter on the kind of uh, Christian take of uh, uh, the resurrection of Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, who better to do that than Chris Redmond? Um, and Lindsay Caldwell. And Chris right, brought in Lindsay. Religious studies. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, so that was, that was uh, again, someone who jumped out at us in terms of uh, their expertise and what they could bring to this. Yeah. So um, it, it really worked out very well. It's a very good book that we're really proud of. Yeah, like I said, when done right, this is a team sport. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, this, this book, again, is, uh, is a great example of that. Now, just looking at the book physically, uh, first of all, the dust jacket uh, has a wonderful uh, color illustration on it. Uh, one of the uh, Frederick Door Steele drawings uh, from the empty house. Of course, uh, when uh, Colonel Moran has been captured and Holmes is there kind of looking satisfied as, as the Bobbies take him away. Um, but the book itself is larger as, as the last one was. It's a bit of an oversized volume. Um, can you can you explain the uh, the logic behind starting to enlarge the uh, the collection here? Well, first of all, the Frederick Dor Steele illustration is actually owned by Mike Whalen, and he uh, provided the scan for it. And, and he and the production team of uh, Steve uh, Doyle and Mark Gagan uh, really determine the size of the book. We have very little say in in that. Um, uh, and uh, I think that because Irregular Stain was a, a bit of an oversized book, um, everybody thought, including us, that uh, it highlighted the, uh, uh, the scan of the manuscript better than the smaller versions of the book. So is the, are these the actual, is this the actual size of the exercise book pages? No, no. Steve, maybe you're better to comment on that. It, 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 these are smaller than if we were to show it at the actual size. I think it would have to be an even larger book. Um, yeah. I'm sure, quite sure, that um, Philip tells us exactly how big they are. It's somewhere in here, but um, I'm not going to find it, of course, immediately. Well, we're looking. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit. Yeah, the, 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 it's a little bit, because the, the, the exercise books are about the size of the the exercise books you had in grade school. Mm. Right. Um, so I think possibly the size bit, of the book of... itself, you know, of, yeah. of basically the size of the, out of the abyss itself. So um, right. the pages are, are reproduced, but only slightly smaller. And unfortunately, um, the costs of reproduction, we couldn't show it to you in color, although very little is really lost because they're just white pages and, black ink, um, but it would have been lovely to have seen it. There's a bit of a backstory, too, Bert asked, you know, when he asked about the size of the book, there's a bit of a backstory in in the sense that to some degree the content influences the format. And if we go back to the previous book, The Irregular Stain, 
which was the second stain manuscript, not only did that volume publish the manuscript, but it also published the galleys, uh, courtesy of Costa, from Costa Rosakis. If you remember, that book published the galleys. And it turns out that if we had, if the galleys had been published in the same smaller size uh, page that that the previous manuscript volumes uh, occupied, you couldn't read it. It was the print would be too small. So um, John Berquist said, "Let's try to go up to this, you know, current page size." Um, and when when that happened, it, it it of course made the the galleys legible. But the other thing is the manuscript just looked really cool, mm-hmm. um, and that was just such a success that that uh, John decided to to stay with that larger size format. Uh, for this volume, and and certainly it's it's easier on the eye. And as, as Steve said, if we'd published it at actual size, it would have been an even bigger book, which which just gets prohibitive in terms right. of of cost and and you know how many coffee tables do we have. Um, so to some degree, a lot of this goes back to the galley proofs, not the manuscript, but the galley proofs of second stain from the previous book. But it, it the, the concept carries forward, and I think benefits the current volume. Well, I'm I'm just glad to hear it's not the large print edition because our editors are aging. <laughs> that doesn't hurt. <laughs> hmm. So it's you know among and you know you talk about surprises, um, you can also talk about delights. Uh, you know, in addition to having the dozen, the works of a dozen contributors and the notes and the manuscript and the reproduction of the manuscript. You also have a wonderful little story here about the conservation of the manuscript with photographs that shows the process of stabilizing the manuscript. And, and here I found one delightful thing, which I had never heard of before. Um, on the front cover of the first exercise book of The Empty House, uh, the typist notes that uh, the requirement was produced was to produce three copies by Thursday, and the typist should send them to the hotel where Conan Doyle often stayed while he was in London, and that the name of the hotel was Morley's Hotel. Yeah. How nice. There's always something new. Mm. Yeah, that is true. Well, uh, I think we've reached the end of our allotted time here, so we'd like to thank Steve Rothman, Bob Katz and Andy Solberg for joining us. If you'd like to get a copy of Out of the Abyss, just head on over to BakerStreetJournal.com. The book should be right there on the front page, but just look under the MS series uh, in the table of contents there, and you should be able to find it uh, quite easily. Order your copy. Order copies for friends. For those interested in Sherlock Holmes, this is an absolute must-have because this this is really the story that, um, when you think about it, generated so much more interest in Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, uh, by the time Conan Doyle finished him off in The Final Problem, there was a, a big outcry. And as you know, 10 years later, there, was, uh, you know, there were people waiting around the street corner to get their copies of The Strand magazine. Um, and this is the serialization uh, that brought Sherlock Holmes back to the public for another good know, 20, 25 years or so. So... Uh, Run out, get yourself a copy of Out of the Abyss, and gentlemen, as always, thank you for sharing your stories with us and with our listeners. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's thank always a pleasure. We'll, uh, 
we'll hope that in some fashion or other this will, manuscript series will continue and uh, the rest of these these terrific really artifacts uh, can can be made available to the Sherlockian reading public. Yeah. Oh, now listen, before you run away, you made a little reference there a few minutes oh, ago to yes. the next book. The, uh, yeah, okay. Um, the next book that, that uh, and, and Andy will uh, ask the comment in, in a moment, the next book that, that Andy and I are doing, and, and Steve's gone back to, to his work with the, the Baker Street, well, he's continued his work with the Baker Street Journal. Andy and I, um, just tomorrow, I think, we'll put the very finishing touch, not even touches, but touch, uh, on a book that we're doing for BSI Press, which will, we hope, be available in, in uh, January of 2016. It doesn't have a title yet officially, but it, the, the book is about um, medicine. In, in the Sherlock Holmes stories in the canon, and uh, it, it's a lot of fun as you can imagine. There's there's a huge medical backdrop to the stories. Uh, you know, there, there's Joe Bell and Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, who are both physicians. The the stories are narrated by a physician. Uh, when you think about it, the first line in the Sherlock Holmes stories do not actually involve Sherlock Holmes. They involve a young man telling us where he went to medical school and when he graduated. Um, and then medical concepts run through the whole the whole canon. Um, it, it, it's uh, obviously influenced by the background of the people that that narrated and edited the stories, and, and to some degree inspired them. And uh, BSI Press, Mike Keenan and John Burquist were kind enough to ask us to uh, to work on that. Actually, they didn't ask us. Uh, they they <laughs> they showed us a couple of ideas for books. One of which said. Uh, a medical volume, and, and it said maybe Bob will want to edit this mm. with Andy. And Andy, of course, has a healthcare background as well. And I at first said, nah, we'll let somebody else do it. And then I thought for about five seconds and said, no, nah, I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so Andy and I, you know, we're, we're, and Andy, as I said, has, has a background as a healthcare consultant. So we uh, uh, put together uh, a series of, of, of articles and, and have a terrific group of writers. Many are physicians in, in, who are Sherlockians and in the Baker Street regulars, but we also have some Ph.D. scientists, and, and we have several other people of uh, not necessarily medical backgrounds, but have backgrounds that lend themselves to um, other medically related issues in the canon, and... Uh, we're, we're, we just basically have, have finished it, and we'll be getting it off to John Burquist uh, uh, in another day or so. And we're we're very excited. Some of the articles um, quite literally upend some of the established concepts in the Sherlockian literature, and uh, I think they're right. Um, I was delighted that one of the one of the contributors uh, makes mention of an article that I written 35 years ago in the Baker Street Journal on a medical subject, and kind of disproves me, and I, I was flattered that anybody even remembered it after all this time, and, and the fact that it, it may not be right is, uh, to me, exciting, because the point is to, to, to get to the bottom of these things, mm. so it's, it's, it's a really well-written book, there are some just stellar articles uh, on, and, and, and what's most important, it's, it's written in a manner that is um, comfortable to the lay reader. Uh, anybody interested in the Sherlock Holmes stories, even if you don't have the, the disadvantage of a medical education, uh, can read these things, uh, the articles, and, and I think come away with a lot from them. Andy, maybe you want to offer a comment. 
Well, it, it's just that it, it, again, amazes me that we have physicians and other people from all over the world who are accomplished, who write analyses that could be published in any professional journal, and uh, they lend their uh, intelligence and wit and, and energy to uh, analyzing uh, medicine in Sherlock Holmes. I mean, these are great, great chapters, and um, uh, everybody took it seriously, and it, it's going to be a, really a, a wonderful book. Do you have a title? Yeah. Well, we it's don't have a title yet. How about we, we the pathology don't... of Sherlock Holmes? Well, it's not no. all pathology. Oh. That's, uh, yeah. I wish we could. Because um, Bob's a retired pathologist. Oh, you're kidding. Um, what, uh, what we, a we initially, uh, our working title was one that we knew that we would never use um, <laughs> because no one would know what it means. The chirurgical canon. Oh, my God. Um, but, but we knew Which is that. the old you know, spelling for surgery. Uh, yeah. Yeah. C H I R U R G I C A L. But, yeah. uh, but we uh, knew that we would, we would be the only people who knew what it meant. So uh, we know it's not yeah, going to be. Yeah, Mike Whalen's comment about that title was it'll send everybody to the dictionary. So I yeah, think that was yeah. the death knell for that title. Yeah. Uh, so, we do have uh, we'll, a we we do have a potential title uh, that uh, derives from the stories that will suggest to uh, uh, John and uh, Burquist and Mike Keane, but um, it, it's it, it's not got a title yet. Hmm, well, what's fun about the book too is is we came up with some pretty neat people. For example, there's an article about Bart's, you know, St. Bartholomew's Hospital that's written by two graduates of St. Bartholomew's Hospital School oh, of wow. Medicine. Yeah. Which is which is very exciting. Who are uh, Sherlockians, and we've got an article on um, toxicology by, uh, without mentioning names, an eminent forensic toxicologist who many of us know and oh. love, uh, and uh, uh, cardiology issues done by a cardiologist. Mm. Uh, the other thing we did was we got a couple of people to to write articles out of their medical specialties, uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and then we have some, some as I said, people who are not hampered by a medical education who, who are just terrific researchers and writers. And there's one article about the University of London that, that's, uh, you know, that Watson received his MD from that's really groundbreaking. Uh, it tells you a huge amount of stuff that we didn't know and has some totally fascinating concepts. Uh, there's a terrific article about actors that played Dr. Watson, uh, which is insightful and funny. Um, and uh, uh, we have a we have we have what I think will be the definitive article on brain fever. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yes, written by by two eminent neuropsychiatrists. Um so what, uh, that, that that absolutely right. What um, it was what it was what it would be considered today why you never hear about it anymore. Um uh it I I really do think it'll be the definitive article. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any question about that. So, um, and, and any, again, anything, we've had the opportunity. I'm sorry, uh, Andy, go ahead. Uh, uh, no, uh, this is Scott, Bob. Uh, anything about uh, Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach? <laughs> He's not a physician. He keeps telling you the guy's degree was in English literature. You know? so, uh, Dang. <laughs> well, well, although since as a pathologist, I spent 40 years avoiding taking care of patients, I guess Rosenbach probably took care of many patients, as many patients as I have in the last. It could be that it could be that Rosenbach. I had many physicians. It could be that 
Rosenbach had much more patience than you did, Bob. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, those of us that lack patience for patients, uh, given the spelling differences, end up in pathology. And uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was it was it was a lot of fun to do it. And, and as Andy said, we, uh, we 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 remain amazed. At, we shouldn't be by now, but we still are, are in awe of just uh, how clever all of these people are. And as I said, the, book, the, the some of the articles are whimsical, some are serious. They're all well-written, and we hope that uh, maybe this time next year you'll invite us back on to, uh, to talk about it. Sure, uh, you we, can count on it. to do that, and uh, would appreciate the opportunity. You, you'll be a four-peat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you so much. Something to look forward to. Always fun hearing from those guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, um, um, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm so impressed. Huh. Well, first of all, I'm so, I'm looking, now I'm looking forward to the next, as yet untitled, book about medicine. I know. But um, the, the, out of the abyss book, the, 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 What's in, I don't know, you know. In a way, it's it's a completely new category. I mean, you know, we saw in the '60s with Baring Gould mm -hmm. the start of these annotated volumes that look at a body of work and attempt to make it relevant to contemporary readers and explain language and customs of the time. And and there've been so many of them. You know, the annotated yeah. Alice in Wonderland and Les Klinger's Dracula and this, and that, and the other thing. Um. But there isn't much of a category of of published manuscript books, and I think it's a. First of all, I think it's a great achievement if Edgar Smith could look and if someone had told Edgar that in the 21st century there would be a, an extensive publishing effort that was reproducing Conan Doyle's manuscripts with these kinds of annotations, I think he would have been floored. Yeah, and uh, it's it's very it's just very entertaining. Very entertaining stuff. Indeed. Indeed it is. And, you know, speaking of entertaining stuff, we have some sponsors that do that kind of stuff, don't we? <laughs> now, well, yeah, one of, them, one of them puts out things like Out of the Abyss. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Our friends at the Baker Street Journal. Yeah, now, I was surprised when I heard you say at the end of that that uh, you, you mean in addition to everything else, this book can be bought? You mean we're actually it's you can just buy it? It is purchasable. Yeah, you don't have to just hear us blather on about it. You can actually read it yourself. Save yourself all the trouble of listening to us. <laughs> Go oh. over to BakerStreetJournal.com. Pick up your own copy. Um, well, no, it's, it's nice when we, uh, when we actually get to cross streams a little bit and we get to have uh, the people behind our sponsorship actually on the show. It mm. kind of lends a little more credibility there. Uh, but, of course, in addition to all the BSI publications that you can find there uh you can find the original bsi publication the baker street journal and mm -hmm. it's not just available to baker street irregulars this is something that everyone should subscribe to if you have a passing interest in sherlock holmes that's exactly right and uh the manuscript series out of the abyss the baker street journal all of these things friends 
If you are as concerned as I am about future generations understanding the current state of Sherlockian scholarship in 2015, buy multiple copies of these things. Do you know most of us live in environments where in the backyard, in the back garden, it's not impossible with a little spade work and a shovel to put in your own time capsule. And three or four issues of the Baker Street Journal, a couple of copies of Out of the Abyss uh, in a sturdy tin box, lead-lined if you want, buried for future generations, is going to mean the world to your great-grandchildren in the next century. So think seriously about that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, head on over to BakerStreetJournal.com. Check it all out. And uh, our other friends at uh, the Wessex Press at WessexPress.com. You know, we were just talking uh, before we got into this sponsorship section about – uh, you know, the, the, these annotated volumes and the, the level of scholarship, it doesn't get much better than the Sherlock Holmes reference library. Uh, this is it. This is the original, exhaustively annotated 10 volume, 10 volumes, not God. nine like other editions of the canon, but 10. Good God. Because it includes, uh, what, it includes the Apocrypha. Of Sherlock Holmes. I always thought that was the apocalypse of Sherlock Holmes. Well, that's coming next week. Oh. You know, batten down the hatches, get your zombie apocalypse supplies ready. <laughs> and, of course, if you're going to take any book with you to the zombie apocalypse, make sure it's the apocrypha oh. of Sherlock Holmes. That's right. Uh, but the Sherlock Holmes reference library, um, this is the – when you think about all of the work that Les put into the, an, the new annotated Sherlock Holmes – um, this is the complete version. You know, all of the notes that couldn't make it into that single volume or that actually triple volume version uh, from uh, Wiley, it all goes here into the uh, Sherlock Holmes reference library. So check that out, as well as uh, a number of other interesting books that we've mentioned on previous episodes mm. from our friends at Wessex Press. Wessex Press, indeed. Excellent. And uh, I think we have one more sponsor. Moms, dads, with today's digital distractions, it's not easy to find games the whole family can enjoy after dinner. That's why you need Sherlock Holmes brand, Colonel Moran's Amazing Aces. Because nothing brings a family together like a rousing game of whist. The kids will respect you more when you win every time. And it's the only rigged deck that brings you the three C's, complete Card playing, confidence, confidence. Ask for Colonel Moran's amazing aces at your dealers today. You know, I I didn't think it was possible. <laughs> nice tie-in to uh, this episode's uh, subject. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave mental exaltation. Welcome to the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere quiz program called Mental Exaltation. If you've ever listened to NPR's uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or Weekend Edition with Puzzle Master Will Shorts, you'll be familiar with our format. But just in case you haven't heard any of those programs, uh, here's how it works. Uh, for each episode, 
we post a qualifying question on our website, IHearOfSherlock.com, and of all of the correct answers submitted, we will select one individual at random, uh, and again, that has to be from the correct answers submitted, uh, and that person will become a contestant on Mental Exaltation. And we vary the format of the quiz show, so on certain episodes, our guests will stand in as proxies for the uh, for the competitors um, and play on their behalf. Um, but in other episodes, we will call the contestants directly on the phone and put them on the air and ask them directly. This episode, we welcome James O'Leary from Natick, Massachusetts. James, you on the line? Yes, I'm, I'm here. Excellent, excellent. Well, your name should be familiar to regular listeners of the show uh, or, or readers of our site. You've been uh, one of our intrepid contributors on IHearOfSherlock.com for uh, many years. And, of course, uh, I think it was in our last episode we heard uh, you were sponsoring. Uh, you, you joined the show as one of our sponsors on behalf of the, uh, the Watsonian and the um, remind me again what it was the uh, the the it was the uh, monograph series that's right. for the uh, John H Watson Society that's right and we thank you for your uh, your kind support of the show and we hope that uh, folks listening out there also support you and your endeavors so now in order to get on the show you qualified uh, on our uh, with our qualifying question. The question we asked was, where did Dr. Watson get his cigarettes? Do you remember your answer? Uh, that was, um, yeah, right. Of course. Of course I remember. <laughs> why wouldn't, why would, uh, wouldn't I remember? I, I'm, uh, I'm putting it, uh, you on the spot here, so uh, that's okay if you, uh, it, if you run out it, of time. It, it, yeah. It's uh, Brady's of uh, Oxford Street, wasn't it? Uh, Bradley's of correct? Oxford Street. Yeah. Bradley's. We'll give you that one. All right. So, uh, among the the scores of, uh, of of entries of correct entries that came in, yours was selected at random, and so we have another dastardly quiz prepared for us by none other than Nick Martarelli. So, uh, I have to ask you: Are you ready? Yes, I am. I I, I was listening um, last month to uh, Sonia Featherstones, and and uh, uh, I was playing along with her in my mind, and I think I got all of them right. So I thought that was pretty good. Excellent. And excellent. yeah, the second time I listened, I definitely got them all right. <laughs> Slight advantage there, right? Yeah, well, yes, of course. That's all right. Well, uh, we turn to Mr. Hilton Soames to ask him if he will begin the examination. Shall the examination proceed? Yes, let it proceed by all means. Uh, yes, we will proceed by all means. So uh, on this episode, we've been talking about the book Out of the Abyss. That involves the years that Holmes was out of action. The chronologists tell us that the great hiatus lasted three years. But to readers of the Strand magazine, of course, Holmes was gone for a much longer time, a span of almost 10 years. So, James, we're going to ask you some questions about other time spans and numbers in the canon. Get two of them right, and you'll win our prize. You ready? 
All right. Okay. Yep. Let's start with Dr. Watson. The good doctor enjoyed, and you, by the way, you might want to have a, a, a pencil and a pad of paper uh, by your side just in case you want to scribble down any notes here along the way. All right. So. All right. Well said. Here we go. So the good doctor enjoyed using numbers in his stories. He must have thought that uh, it made the stories more memorable. So let's see how memorable they actually were. We have a math problem for you to start. Here we go. All right. Start with the number of Napoleons. Add, All right. Add to that the number of how many the sign of was. All right. Okay. Multiply that by the number of gables. Okay. Subtract the number of steps up to the sitting room at Baker Street. All right. Add the number of orange pips. Okay. What is your answer? Um, let me just double check my math here because okay. uh, I can't do things in my numbers in my head. <laughs> and... Uh, I only have 20 fingers and toes. But fortunately, um, well, I don't have 20 fingers and 20 toes, but I have 10 fingers and 10 toes. And fortunately, the answer is 18, so I still have two toes left. That is correct. Of course, it's six Napoleons. And you add to that the sign of four. That gives you 10. Multiply that by the three gables. Uh, You subtract 17 steps up to Baker Street, and then you add the five orange pips, giving you 18. Very good. Okay, you have one under your belt. So let's move away now from Watson and talk about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who we hear has some sort of involvement in these stories. Uh, Conan Doyle lived a long life that spanned two centuries all the time writing and involving himself in politics. So, at the intersection of those two passions of his, identify which span of time is longer, the time between the publication of the first Holmes story and the last Holmes story, or the time between the beginning of the First World War and the end of the Second World War. Ooh, the beginning of the First World War was 1914, and the end of the Second World War was uh, 1945. Okay, and then the time between the publication of the first home story and the publication of the last home story. Okay, so that would be 31 years for World War One and World War Two, and the first home story was published in 1887, and the last one was in uh, 1927. So, zero. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, so the... Um, 40, 40 years. 40 years between the first story and the last story. So that was... That is correct. That is correct. So you've got two right. So you're going to win the prize no matter what. So you can, you know, not sweat this last question. We're going to turn to actors who have played Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And the age of these characters shifts throughout the years, as does the difference in ages between Holmes and Watson. So... For your final question, tell us, 
which Holmes Watson pairing has the largest age differential between the two actors who played the parts? Okay, and you have three, okay. three choices Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick, Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, or Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Oh, let's see. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. I, I don't know. Um, I'll say um, Jude Law and uh, Robert Downey Jr. I think maybe a couple years. That is correct. Wow. So Jeremy Brett was born in 1933. Edward Hardwick in, excuse me, Hardwick in 1932. So there was only a one-year difference between those two actors. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was born in 1976, Martin Freeman in 1971. Differential is five years for them. And then Robert Downey Jr., born in 1965, Jude Law, born in 1972, for a difference of, say it with me, seven years. That's right. Seven years. Seven years between those two. So there you have it. You, Amazingly, James, you got all three questions right. Here we go. So you're going to get the voice of a Baker Street Irregular on your voicemail. All right. Or a Sherlockian tchotchke from our our IHO's GBG, our great big oh. grab bag. So Nothing from the um, um, Sherlock Holmes brand uh, catalog there? Uh, unfortunately, uh, our budget does not go quite that far. We haven't lined sponsors <laughs> up that will uh, help us out that long. So, <laughs> I don't know. That coal stove was sounding pretty good a while back. And, you know, you can always use another dust jacket. I know, for, right? Uh, dusting your book. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you can let us know offline what you, uh, what you decide to choose. But thank you so much for being a contestant here on Mental Exaltation. Oh, well, thank you, and uh, hope to see you soon. <sighs> oh, what a relief it is. <laughs> what a relief it is. Well, I think, uh, you know, this time, uh, rather than going uh, directly to the pages of the Baker Street Journal, uh, we thought we would actually head over to uh, Out of the Abyss, the, the very volume that we talked to you uh, about, on um, the, general, uh, the general preface, or the general editor's preface uh, to the whole series you know, for for the amount of times we've actually had um, guests on the show talking about the manuscript series, we haven't really referred too much uh, to the uh, the actual text there. So we thought we would read a little excerpt from the general editor's preface. Mm-hmm. Just as we value diversity in all aspects of society, we must recognize the intellectual diversity among Sherlockians and Homesians throughout our ranks and throughout the world today. And in doing so, those of us who tread Baker Street in our hearts and dreams in this age must lay the groundwork for those who will follow long after we have crossed 
the Reichenbach, or Valhalla, or points beyond. What nobler effort, then, at keeping green the master's memory than preserving for posterity a permanent codex of the very words penned by Conan Doyle, and the views of scholars whose study and analysis assures us, and our literary heirs, of a resource that otherwise might not exist. We need only consider the fact that the Baker Street Irregulars was founded in January 1934, less than four years after the death of Arthur Conan Doyle on July 7, 1930. Men who walked in our shoes in the early days of the Sherlockian movement were his contemporaries, and in some instances, even his friends. Would that they had recorded their memories and their experiences with the same enthusiasm that we seek out, every word they wrote, to learn what we can of what they knew. Perhaps one day, scholars will seek out the writings in this modest tome in similar fashion. Nicely done. I think that, um, you know, the, 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 this is sort of from the general preface to the entire manuscript series here, but I really um, like that point very much. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the general editor of the uh, manuscript series is Andrew Fusco, BSI. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Andy, uh, we, we heard mention of Andy Fusco I think in episode 64, when we had, um, oh, who do we have on? Our, our international uh, uh, collector there, Don Hobbs. Oh, right. Yeah, he joined us, and he said he went to Andy Fusco's in West Virginia and saw his amazing library. Hmm. Uh, so Andy is uh, a stalwart BSI and an excellent uh, general editor to the series. Hmm. He is indeed. Excellent. Well, now, as we come to the conclusion of the show here, I have to tell you that I have a little bit of a surprise for you. You do? I do. For me? For you. Or for our listeners? Uh, both. I, oh, okay. Both. Uh, I would like to introduce a new feature that would uh, at least appear this, this one time. You know, we've uh, uh, been working on quizzes and things that are a bit more engaging. And so I have a little quiz uh, for you that I have some uh, little special introduction for. Just to introduce it, and here it is. Who would cross the bridge of death must answer me these questions three. Uh, the other side, he see. Ask me the questions, bridge keeper. I'm not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, in my uh, researches and reading and enjoyment of Out of the Abyss, one of the things that occurred to me was... Uh, one of the things that happens when you look at the literature of Sherlock Holmes is that you're frequently confronted by language from another age. Mm. And if you read Out of the Abyss, you will find among all of those words, the words effulgent pandect. And my question to you, Scott Monty, is what is an effulgent pandect? And I have three answers for you to choose from. An effulgent pandect is A, a lucent treatise, B, a flowing culvert, or C, a rushing torrent. Hmm. What is an effulgent pandect? 
Well, I was thinking of effulgent spandex, so I'm I'm going to be a little <laughs> off here. I will go with B. Oh. Uh, it's a good it's a good guess. Effulgent pandect is actually uh, a a lucent treatise, a glowing treatise, oh. and it pops up in the early part of Out of the Abyss. Um, in something written by Edgar Smith, of all people. Oh. An effulgent pandect. Well, it's consider me illuminated. Illuminated. And here's the concluding, the concluding uh, music that I have here. Right. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm relieved. I thought I was going to have to answer three questions. No, well, oh. no. Uh, three choices, one question. Sent me oh. off to the dictionary, effulgent yes, pandect. Indeed. Now I've got to figure out how to work it into a conversation this week. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll be good. Yeah, that'll that's be right. good. Well, Ooh. folks, if you've had as great a time as we have here, or even if you hadn't, <laughs> let us know. Send us a comment. Please uh, do. Feel free to shoot us an email, a comment at IHearOfSherlock.com, or pop right on to the show notes for episode 60, excuse me, 76. That's what we are, episode 76, on I Hear of Sherlock. Dot com. Mm. Yes, and Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, everything is I hear of Sherlock, Facebook.com, I hear of slash I hear of Sherlock, I hear of Sherlock.tumblr.com, Twitter.com slash I hear of Sherlock. And please leave us a comment at uh, on iTunes. And oh, yes. The, the short new URL for the iTunes comment is... Your your i your uh, URL uh, I think it's just still bitly slash I hear of oh, Sherlock. Okay, that hasn't changed. No, that hasn't changed. But what has changed is our Flipboard address. That's ihose dot co. Right. Flip Sherlock. Flip Sherlock. That's right. Yeah. And ihose dot co. Scoop Sherlock. at scoop it. Yes, 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 yes. And this is a, a good time to re- to remind you that if you want to find any of our uh, previous episodes online. Just use ihose.co slash ihose and then the show number. So, for example, this show would be ihose.co slash ihose76. Mm. Uh, that's a handy way of kind of cataloging and archiving all of our past episodes, trying to make it easier for you to remember and for other folks to find. Mm, excellent. So check it out. Mm. And uh, as we said, we, we appreciate those reviews on iTunes. Even if you just want to give us uh, some stars and, and not leave a full review, that's fine. Uh, but that helps other people find the show and helps us become a little more successful in what we're trying to do. Mm. So thank you for all that you do for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Mm. And thank you for everything you do for I Hear of Sherlock. Who, me? Yeah, you. I don't do that much. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, you're, just, the, you're the guy with the editing job. That's, that's what I, I don't envy that one. Well, I have my scissors. I have my tape. It's easy. You make us sound good. Oh, well, it's nothing. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, until the next time you hear us sounding good, this is Scott Monty. And Bert Wolders. And we say together. Yes. The, the game's afoot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. 
Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 